Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I'm your host, obviously, Mark Groves. That would make sense. And on this show, we explore human psychology, why we do what we do, and how do humans connect, and how do we create really thriving relationships, and how do we have a thriving relationship with ourselves. Please subscribe to the podcast, because that really helps me out and also allows you to get all the updated episodes with experts in all areas of human psychology and just general thriving in terms of life. Also check out my website, www.markgroves.tv, to learn more about me and why I do what I do. On this episode, I have Alexandra Salmon, Dr. Alexandra Salmon, let me get that correct, <laughs> where your title on, uh, what is it, the Helio website, mm-hmm. is Relationship Architect, which I absolutely love. I love that concept that we are the architects of our own lives, our own relationships, and the fact that you are helping people um, construct theirs is such a beautiful thing. So as part of my ongoing love affair with Organifi, I have been trying all their products, and I have now made part of my morning routine their green juice. And if you don't know what their green juice is, it's essentially like a superfood orgy of, (laughs) I don't know if there's another, there's probably another way to say it, but I don't want to say it another way because that tells you what's happening. Moringa, chlorella, mint, spirulina, beetroot, matcha green tea, wheatgrass, ashwagandha, turmeric, lemon juice, coconut water, all getting in each other's business so they can bring the power of those superfoods to your body. So if this sounds like something that you're like, yo, I want to make that part of my morning routine, especially because you know when you drink green juice sometimes and you're like, oh, that tastes like lawnmower shavings with water. This tastes so good. So if that sounds like something you're like, yo, I want some of that, go to Organifi.com slash create the love and you get a discount. O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash create the love. You get 20% off. Alexandra Salmon is a clinical assistant professor at Northwestern University in beautiful Chicago-ish area mm-hmm. and a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern as well. An all-round amazing human being who I love. And I wanted to call you because last time I saw you speak at Masters of the Universe Summit, you talked about desire and especially gave us some amazing insights into female desire. So I wanted to call you a genius. Have you ever heard that term? That's the best. I love it. A genius. (laughs) I heard that on. I heard that on New Girl because Schmidt had a had. There was a girl who was a lesbian and a gynecologist, so he called her a genius. It was a great term. Sure is. Imagine (laughs) if you put that on your title slide at your next talk, genius. Oh my god! I'm not saying that I'm. I won't. I'm not promising I I won't do that. (laughs) Seriously, I think that would be really amazing. So. I wanted to bring you on here because you have so much insight to share. You teach a course called Marriage 101, right? At Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And you said that, is that like, it is one of the most popular classes? What is? You know, I, not really one of it. it. It is the, it's the most popular class at Northwestern. It's, it is something we have worked really hard to cultivate. We've taught it. Uh, it's been taught 17 times now. It's really become sort of a staple on campus and registration opens and it fills up in a heartbeat and then the wait list fills up. And then my email box is full of uh, emails from students begging, can you just please make a space for me? And I've been trying for four years to get in and it's just wonderful. It's a, you know, it's a deep dive. It's just a deep dive. How many people does it take? We, well, I negotiate with the university and I, you know, they give me a number and I give them, I want more. And then we end up kind of meeting in the middle somewhere. So we'll, we'll end up taking about 70 
and I have 10 teaching assistants. And all of my teaching assistants are second year students in our master's program in marriage and family therapy. So they're therapists, you know, in training themselves. And so when we meet in our little discussion groups, like they're applying material to themselves and digging into their own histories. So it's this really cool intersection of like brain and heart, you know, so they're learning the research and reading the top thinkers in the field. And then they're also looking at their own families, their own belief systems, their own experiences. Wow. And, you know, it gives a because it's in an academic center, you know, from a socially acceptable optics point of view, even us men might dive in. But what is the percentage of of like female to male uh, attendees or, or mm-hmm. people who get into your class? It's probably 70 percent women, maybe two thirds, one third. Definitely there are more women than there are men. There's always a really nice one year I had like the whole offensive line of the football team sitting in the back row of <laughs> lecture so hall. Awesome. Yeah, it was cool. It was really, you know, it just it it pulls students from all over the campus. Last year I taught a lot of engineers, which I think was really special because it was, I think, an important way to round out their education, kind of engage different parts of their brains and you know, and basically I'm training them. Uh, it's a course where we are learning to become systemic thinkers. You know how we're always talking about like it's my stuff plus your stuff that creates our stuff and every mm-hmm. romantic relationship. And so I'm really inviting them to think systemically. And so for my environmental engineers, you know, that's like second nature to them, but they haven't really done <laughs> like, it wait, around. System? This is amazing. Uh-huh. It's systems. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really special. And I'm super grateful that, that we get to do it every year. When I think that's that part where we get to separate this idea of emotions being so heart-centered and we're reactionary to them versus actually taking this step back that becomes more intellectual in a way and and where we're like you say in your book loving bravely that we become archaeologists so we're it's hard to look at our own shit without being oh by the way you can be explicit in this i have the e probably on every episode but the uh, not that we're going to try to swear, but it just happens. But the, I, I love in your book how you talk about being an archaeologist where we are not going in there digging it up from this emotional rummaging point of view, but from this idea of let's actually just become scientists. Let's become observers of our past, of our experiences, because there's beautiful nuggets there. Some of them not maybe don't feel so beautiful, but they're filled with wisdom and, and beauty in that sense. And and that we do remove, although again, challenging, where we can do the both end, which you talk about in your book too, these dialectics, where we can be looking at it and it be painful, but it also be incredibly informative. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, you know, without without having that space, whether it's through your podcast, my book, a course, where somebody says to you, you know what? It, sure, it's scary to turn around and start to look at your past and name stuff that happened to you. Without it, you are you're a victim of your patterns and your cycles, and you're just going to repeat and repeat. You know, us human beings, we are we're pulled to repeat and repeat and repeat. And it's in the service of trying to understand and master, but it's far braver. And frankly, efficient to just stop, turn around and start to sort of narrate the story of our lives, sort of make meaning of chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, look at the patterns and the threads, look at how our family did conflict, did closeness, did touch, did difference, did power, did gender. When we look at sort of those you know, our family system is our first classroom, our first love classroom. Mm -hmm. And we are little bitty social scientists, you know, from our very (laughs) earliest days. 
and Nolan is, you know, sometimes the messages are explicit, right? Sometimes parents say to their kids, men are, women should, you know, this is what love is. This is what marriage should be. But a lot of times it's just implicit. It's just what we're picking mm-hmm. up and soaking in through our, through our cells. And again, like you're saying, it's not that like gotcha where we're going in there to blame our parents or to find the root and see there it is. They did this to me. No, because then you're still a victim. It's about claiming, claiming, integrating, and narrating. And we know that the more cohesive and coherent we are about the story of who we are, that gives us the freedom then to move forward and really be in the driver's seat. Like, oh, here's that pattern again. Okay, so what do I know? What have I learned? How can I do this differently? Yeah, I hear that so much in working with clients and just, you know, people in general where they're like, well, I'm ready for a relationship. Why do I keep attracting an asshole or whatever, you know, whatever and mm-hmm. the, the gender alternative to that. But the the interest, I mean, exactly what you said about patterns and systems is there's still something you're doing that's the same, mm-hmm. you know, they, or you wouldn't be inviting it. And maybe the invitation is coming to say no. But that this behavior change comes when we begin to actually, you know, you use the term a lot, relational self-awareness. When we build this self-awareness about how we relate to other people and we become, I mean, architects, again, to use that mm-hmm. lovely mm-hmm. word, mm-hmm. you really start to um, take responsibility for our own stuff. Mm-hmm. Because like, I think one of the most challenging things for me, because I did really come from a really what I would call like I would say a very peaceful childhood. I had, I was very blessed, you know, you know, say like, you don't choose your parents, then I won the lottery. And if I chose them, well done, I'm picking, you know, however the <laughs> existential belief is. But I, you know, there was a part of me that felt guilty for even having things, you know, where I was like, I don't have permission to have a trauma from childhood right. when I know people who have been sexually abused or, you know, mm-hmm. all these different emotional, physical abuse. And and that was really an interesting, I know I'm sure there's people listening who are going, well, my stuff's not as big as their stuff or, or my stuff's really big. They didn't have it as bad as me or whatever. Do you encounter that a lot? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. So much. The, yes. The, the sort of, um, woundedness competition. I, I hear you. And yeah, it's so easy, right. To kind of get out of our own experience and kind of try to put a label on it, a more or less good, bad, should, shouldn't it shouldn't hurt this bad. It shouldn't have impacted me this much versus again, kind of going back to that scientist idea, just trusting our own data. So when I pull up that memory, the pain around it is so big. Okay. So stop there rather than, but it shouldn't be that big. And my friend down the street had the same thing and her, she didn't struggle as much as I'm struggling. Okay. That's all an additional layer that doesn't need to be there. So if we really like what happens when we shift into a place of trusting the internal wisdom of the data of our emotions. So when you're saying this, it's really looking at it from a, like looking at it from the information point of view and stopping where emotion and judgment takes over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as soon as we get to the, you know, this sort of like creating a hierarchy of pain or creating a comparison game of I should or shouldn't, whatever. Um, so being able to look at it and you, in your book, you talk about this. It's, it's, what is the process to name? Name, connect, choose. Yeah. Name it. So walk, walk the people listening through what that would look like. Cause I'm sure everyone's like, tell me more. Name, connect, choose. Yeah. Name, connect, choose. So, so the book, Loving Bravely is a, 
It's a journey in and through self. And we sort of like make these 20 stops along the way. And we're sort of gathering, you know, gathering data, taking a look, putting sort of a pin down in these different places in order to kind of understand, okay, so what have you come to believe about yourself and about relationship when it comes to gender, when it comes to apology, when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to conflict? And the tool that we use in each of those 20 spots is name, connect, choose. And the first thing has to be, is is naming, right? Nothing, um, there's a beautiful James Baldwin quote, not everything that is named can be changed, but nothing can change until it's named. Nothing can change until it's named. And so the first thing is naming, naming your father's addiction, naming your sibling's suicide. I think so often we take those pain loaded chapters and like, put them in a box, put a bunch of tape around the box, bury the box. Like no one talks about that thing. Nobody. No, we cannot. We don't look at it. We don't talk about it. We don't touch it. And then we, and the belief there is, you know, it may be if we look at it, it's going to swallow us whole. We'll never get out again. Or if we look at it, then we get into sort of blaming, you know, whatever it is. But the problem with that, the problem is when we don't name those painful chapters, they're still affecting us, right? What's silent is still charged and still has impact. It's just that the impact tends to come out sideways, you know? So <laughs> it comes out in moments that are not even about it. No, right. So I end up right with yeah. couple, you know, that's the bulk of my couples therapy when I'm sitting with a couple. They're fighting this moment and this moment is so charged. And what we do as the three of us do is sort of unpack the charge around this moment. And inevitably there are ghosts in the room, right? The, you know, partner A is so charged about this issue because for them it chains to whatever, a 40-year history of feeling neglected, unseen, devalued. Mm. So it feels like it's about the butter dish, you know, or whatever. <laughs> right. you know, the I've toilet done, seat. I always oh think the God. toilet seat. Oh, yeah, like I've done. if I left the toilet seat yeah. up and you let your partner fall in, it's funny for a moment. For, just for a moment. Yeah. For about a microsecond. Uh-huh. But yeah, so it's not about it. Right. That's right. So that's, that's the name. So the naming is kind of developing that, that map of your tender spots and then connecting is allowing yourself to feel whatever the feelings are that are attached to that wound. So let's do the toilet seat. So we name it. Mm -hmm. So naming is, um, right. So the toilet seat. So, so when you leave the toilet seat up and I get this wet, (laughs) wet, cold booty, the the knee jerk reaction is rage. And we know (laughs) the thing we know about rage or anger, it is a powerful cue to us that we've got to do some digging, right? So anger in its rawest expression is pretty rarely useful, but it is a, a powerful indicator that it's time to tune into ourselves, you know, and do a little digging and reflecting about what's, what are the other elements at work here? So in, in the toilet seat example, would be like naming it would be you left the toilet seat up. Mm-hmm. Connecting to it. Mm-hmm. Connecting to, to the, right, to the, to the, to the anger and then staying with the anger and what else? And what else? And oftentimes it can be, you know, whatever. Maybe it's a, a profound, like there's also just a profound sadness around feeling really um, unseen and devalued. Like I've asked you so many times and, and I, when you leave the toilet seat up, I feel really unseen. So it's like, I'm not important enough. I don't, I don't matter enough for you to hear me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm aware that a piece of that, a piece of my sensitivity around that comes from whatever it was, being um, the younger sister of a kid with special needs, you know, and my whole family 
was devoted to my older sibling's special needs. And I felt really unseen as a kid. And so I'm tender to it. I'm tender. I'm sensitive. I'm, it's my Achilles heel. I'm forever scanning my relationships for evidence that I'm unseen. So this is really important. So from the cognitive, you know, sort of like confirmation bias perspective in psychology. So for people who don't know what that is, that's this idea that what we believe, what we identify as we seek evidence to confirm. And so our mind is constantly looking for negativity, looking because, you know, from a survival perspective, that was important. And also how we identify and what we believe was is very important to human beings. So if we have this belief that no one takes care of me, no one nurtures me, I'm always neglected, we'll do more evidence collecting for that belief than we will for the ways people do show up for us. Absolutely. Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And so then the so then the third piece, the name connect choose. Now the choose is the choose is so if I don't if I don't do that process, I may just kind of rage, right? You mm. are so lazy. You take me for granted. You never think of anybody but yourself. You are self, you know. The use are firing out. The use are firing out. With that sort of connecting to, okay, anger, what else, what else? I can then turn and say, listen, I've got something to talk about with you. I'm really aware at, of, of the trigger of the toilet seat. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what it connects to for me. And very often what happens is as the other guy hears um, the toilet seat person, the one who's leaving the seat up, here's kind of the complexity and the layers are like, holy shit, I didn't know. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I did not know it was such a big deal. I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a post-it note above the toilet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on my forehead, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So from in your book, you talk a lot about the process of going, and for anyone who's interested, definitely get her book because for any building and relationship relational self-awareness. It is absolutely amazing. I love it. I recommend it to everybody. And so in the process of name, connect, choose, the choosing part is choosing sort of like a different path. In Gottman's work, he'd talk about it being like the the sliding door moments. Mm, I love that. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like in between reaction and response, we're so used to reacting the same way, continuing with the same pattern, creating the same system, you know, for the engineer, they'd love this. And then when we actually choose different in between reaction, I'm shutting down, I feel hurt, I feel neglected. Now I'm going to choose a behavior that creates more connection, more vulnerability, rather than disconnection and withdrawal, which we would be used to. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And that, and that choose, the, the path back to connection, I was going to say almost always, but I think always, involves leaning in with something that feels tender, scary, mm. risky. So if you're feeling your heart raise, your palms get a little sweaty. If you're afraid, this is, you know, this is getting pretty vulnerable. My tender underbelly is being exposed. You're probably on the right path because what our relationships need are lots of moments of partners being willing to, in the context of trust, I'm not talking about on uh, on the first date doing this, but in the context of a trusting relationship, <laughs> yeah, right. right? What makes relationships be able to go the distance and survive the inevitable like bumps and bruises and toilet seats? It is our willingness to kind of take that deep breath and instead of launching into the use or retreating or retreating, really, mm-hmm. okay, I want, I want to talk to you about this because I am aware I'm so triggered by this. Can you sit with me and unpack it with me? Because it's a problem. This is a problem. And I want us to work as a team 
and I want you to better understand me and where I'm coming from. And I want to share with you a piece of my journey around what it was like to whatever, be the younger sister of somebody with special needs, be the daughter of an alcoholic, be a, you know, a part of a family that survived, whatever, you know? Yeah, I love that because it really shows like in order to ask someone, you know, because we always want someone else to go first. We always want them to be vulnerable first, them to say, I love you first, them to do whatever first. Maybe orgasm is the only exception uh, <laughs> if you're a girl and you're heterosexual. You're like, you don't come first. I haven't gone yet. Uh, it's had to turn to sex eventually. But the, the <laughs> this idea of the person exposing the vulnerability is inviting the other person to the same space. And I love that because it's this act of courage you know, and loving bravely. It's this act of bravery that invites the other person to the same space. And it's, you know, I think we take turns in relationship of who's brave, but it, I, I, I do believe we do have to take turns in some sense, because I, you know, it sort of gets to this place where it's like, am I the one who's always being brave first? I need you to support me too. That's right. That's right. Yes. Well, yeah. And I address that in the book because it is, I think that is to me, a relational red flag is a partner who responds to a vulnerable disclosure with hostility, with an eye roll, who uses it again later. I think one of the things that is a worrisome pattern that I really work on with my couples is if a vulnerable disclosure then becomes a, a is used later as a weapon, that's really a pretty toxic pattern. So really learning that vulnerable disclosures warrant respect. Mm. Yeah, that makes so much sense because it's like you might be tender in the moment and then later use it on you. And then they're like, well, I'm never going to be tender again. Mm -hmm. you, know, you get mm -hmm. to that space of like, you always do this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Yep. And we know whenever you say you always are, you never, we're in for some shit. Yep. That's anything that follows that. So now in the context of when we move to desire, because I, I really love what you had to say on desire and relationships and the complex nature. I used to joke that, although I'm not sure that I even mean it as a joke, I never did really, let's be honest. The <laughs> idea that every vagina should come with like a Google Maps for how they all work so differently. I joked about that when you were doing your talk, but that, that desire for a female, I remember when you showed the map of, <laughs> of <laughs> desire Every man who's heterosexual is, or, or even um, anyone who's uh, who has female female attraction, they're going like, yep, that's true. Right. Like, I get mm -hmm. it. And, and I feel like that is very much like the complex nature of the feminine versus although men are, you know, we are complex in, mm -hmm. in many ways. Our sexual desire seems to be more linear, mm -hmm. although I don't want to speak for I'm not sure what you're about to say. So tell tell us about it. What's the difference? And yeah, it can, it's such an important conversation to have, but I, you know, I hear, I hear you doing it already and I do it too, which is, I think whenever we start talking about men are and women are, it, it gets really essentializing and none of us, none of us fit very well in these two, you know, whenever you're trying to put any sort of people into two pots, you know, it doesn't tend to go very well, but yes, the re you know, what the research shows us, um, and for whatever complicated sort of nature, nurture, complexities, it, it is, we can talk a little bit about, um, it's mostly a distinction between sort of the idea of um, primary desire versus responsive desire. That we do tend, people do tend to experience kind of more of a primary desire versus a responsive desire. And I'll explain what we can talk about the difference. And it does tend to be that people who live in a male body tend more towards that 
primary desire and women who live in a female or people who live in a female body tend to experience more of that responsive desire. And this is Emily Nagoski's work, which has been so important in this way. And a number of writers, Esther Perel, obviously is an important voice around the nature of desire, but it's kind of, um, there's this interesting history where Masters and Johnson had this very linear map of how of the sort of human. Basically the map of how the penis worked. Yes. But what it was That's called, how I looked at it. That's right. That's right. It's a map, right. It really is maybe a really accurate map of the journey of the penis. But what, <laughs> right. what it was called. We should called, just tell them great research on the penis. Great. Awesome. Well done around that. You explained, right. You explained a, a part of the world, but the problem was for many, many years, it was called the human sexual response cycle. So it, what it was, was the idea of um, desire comes first. You feel a little something, something in your loins. You uh-huh. feel more, you have that experiential feeling of horniness. You have desire. Hey. Then you have arousal. Then you have, you know, plateau, orgasm, resolution. So we have desire, arousal, plateau, orgasm, resolution, orgasm, plateau, resolution, I suppose. Makes sense. Is that right? No, yeah. Well, a little plateau and then the orgasm. That's oh, hey, oh, that's how they and then a huge plateau and then cuddling is and then cuddling. Post, <laughs> post-coital cuddling uh, is and a snack. <laughs> yeah, and a snack and a cigarette for the smokers. Right? Out. That's it with the 70s. Well, yes. So and that and that was that was um, that worked. So, so the problem then comes that when that is your model, then, uh oh, what do you do about the people who, who are coming to you saying, you know what? I don't. That's not my experience. I don't feel something, something in my loins. What, they were all diagnosed with hypo-sexual desire disorder. They were Ugh. labeled dysfunction. That is that dysfunctional. Kills that me. Dysfunctional. That kills me. Like if you don't work how the way the penis works, and even for a lot of men, you know the the connection piece before, right? Like before horniness still requires emotional connection. Absolutely. You know so. He was talking about his penis, I think. He probably just put <laughs> crap on his own dong and then looked at some porn. <laughs> it's like, now we understand humans. <laughs> Is he still alive? Because if he's listening to this, I, I love you, man. Good work on making people feel hypo-broken. Hyper-broken. All right. That's right. Yeah, hyper-broken for being hypo. Yeah, right. So then so then in the um in the 90s and the early 2000s, um one of the voice really important researchers in this area is Mom Besson and she came in and was like, mm, "Okay, so this is the issue. Oftentimes for women, especially women over the age of 30 slash in longer term sexually monogamous relationships, the first step in a sexual encounter is willingness." willingness to get going. And oftentimes it is kind of willingness, a sense of connection, a sense of I'm open to it. And then the body catches up. So there's not, there's either rarely or usually or, um, sorry, rarely or never a sense of like, damn, I got to get myself some sex. I really want to get in bed with you. And that, and, and without an understanding that there are multiple pathways in and sometimes openness is the first step and the, and the mm-hmm. body will respond. Without that, it can be so easy to start going on with stories, right? Her story becomes, I'm broken. I'm broken. I'm damaged. I used to feel this way and now I don't. It must mean we're doomed. It must mean I don't love you anymore. And then her partner's story becomes, you are not attracted to me. 
you're not attracted to me. You must be cheating on me. Uh, it must be the five pounds I've gained. It must be, you know, it, it, so it's, so then we're, it's so easy for individuals and couples to be off to the races, making all kinds of meaning from something that is actually a pretty accurate description of the experience of many, many women, which is the nature of desire is really freaking tricky. What's interesting to think that the model that whatever hyposexual guy, oh, was, mm-hmm. no, the one the, before, yeah. created is sort of like being socialized into the understanding of relationship. Like if there's not desire there, then you're you're broken in some sense versus, wow, you're this complex human being who actually both of you are. And you both require all these different parts of connection and safety and love and intimacy. And in some way requires, you know, like Esther Perel's work requires some distance and some mystery and some allure, Mm -hmm. you know, that all these pieces that, that people are not necessarily taught. So like you said, they're just like, well, I guess we're doomed or broken. Right. And, And maybe that's, maybe that is in some ways an easier conclusion than to say, okay, what are we going to do? What, how do we create the conditions in our relationship where our bedroom, our bed, our whatever it is, becomes a place for play, exploration, nurturing, whatever it is, to, to allow the fact that, you know, sex is a, is a it's the, the um, sort of behavior of sex is a rather straightforward thing, but the layers of meaning, emotion, identity expression, are so um, rich and subtle and and nuanced. And so to open all of that up and to have your bed or your sexual space become kind of like a crucible for play, expression, exploration is maybe riskier. And maybe there's in some ways an easier story of like, well, guess, you know, we had a good run. Guess we're broken, you know. (laughs) (laughs) We we did. We had enough orgasms. It's over. Uh Ship uh has sailed. So I, for all the men out there in heteros, I'm just going to speak in heteronormative mm-hmm. moment for a moment here from the, and maybe in terms of homosexual relationships too, or even the more masculine in a same sex relationship. I often hear actually, yeah, no matter the relationship dynamic this like, no matter what I try, you still don't want to do it. Like you're telling me you want these things. Like you need me to hear you you need me to connect with you. You need me to take out the trash and still, you know, and I get that mm-hmm. on some sense, that's like conditional love because we're saying, well, I'm going to do all these things so that you hump me mm-hmm. or you give me a BJ or you tickle my balls or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But like, <laughs> I feel like that ends up being this spiral that people go, well, fuck it then. Mm-hmm. Like no matter, you know, and it becomes this resentment that builds up because it's like you ask me for the things, I do the things and now you don't want to do the thing. So here's what, here's yeah. where, yes, I completely, completely hear you. And right. And she is reading all of those gestures as, oh, okay, this is him. This is, this is foreplay. And it can become a sort of pressure cooker for her. And so Mm -hmm. I I think this is a real failure around, I mean, I think this is sort of a reflection of a lot of stuff, including patriarchy and ways that we don't support women from early on in their development of their sexuality to really understand the true nature of the word, the true definition of the word sexy. So sexy Mm -hmm. used to mean the experience of your own divine sexual energy that comes from within and must be expressed. What it's come to mean is, do you find me like it's, it's, it's sort of becomes external word of, do you, where I am this, I am the object of your Mm -hmm. appraisal. 
And so, so girls become women. They, they, their sexuality is kind of founded upon this idea that it's determined by you. You give me my orgasm. You determine if I'm thin enough, fit enough, pretty enough, hot enough, move the right way to be worthy of being with you. And then we ask them to maintain sexual desire over the course of a long-term relationship when they've never (laughs) had, they've never had that really, the, the, the foundation that every girl slash woman deserves to have is listen, honey, sex needs to be a space that you enter into in order to tap into and explore something really creative and potent and beautiful that lives within you. You pull it in, Mm -hmm. you, you pull it up and through and express it through you. It's about you finding your pleasure. So it's this, I love how Esther talks about the incredible selfishness and selfishness that happens at the very same time. Right? There's something very selfish, especially around a woman finding and working towards her own pleasure in a sexual situation. I will tell you, I've sat with many couples and had the husband be like, absolutely, honey, use me as a tool for your sexual pleasure. I would <laughs> I love. Will, I will lick, I will touch, I will, I will circle, do whatever will needs to be done. You, yeah, teach me. Help me learn you. Like I will, you know, bear witness to you as you learn you. And there's a really cool way that then sex in in the safety of a loving relationship becomes this, you know, sexual healing space where she can maybe for the first time ever find and claim her own sort of divine, feminine, potent sexual energy. Yeah, because what often happens is there becomes the awareness of I've shut off myself. I've given away my self-worth, my desire to someone else. This can happen for men too. Yep. And I've put my self-worth in other people's hands. Like when they leave me, I'm no longer worthy. When they don't desire me, I'm not desirable. Like you said, we go from it being this energetic experience of divine expression to being the object of. And I love that. And then when we actually wake up though to that, we can often push away the, the life we've created around that thought. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so, so what I often see is then we resent what currently exists in our lives and blame the other person for being part of the same socialized pattern. Absolutely. It's not their fault. You know, in a way we chose each other, we created the story together and we can both wake up together. That's right. I love this idea of can, can this relationship, this marriage, this relationship bust through and become bigger as we become bigger? You know, can this, Mm. can this relationship become a bigger container for what we now need, right? We're busting through old stories where, you know, we are bigger as individuals. And so can the relationship get bigger to support it? I think that's really beautiful, courageous work that people can do, you know, sort of this like really like this dialectic, this both and of it's a deep intra psychic journey, but it's really relational as well. It really goes to that idea too of, you know, we, we talk a lot now about we, I mean, the media does about people leaving too soon now, right? Like they find a relationship and because there's so much choice, they just leave. Mm -hmm. They don't love like they used to love back in our day when you (laughs) you couldn't even fax back then, but maybe for kids now, faxing is the old day. (laughs) My sister wanted to fax something the other day. I was like, what the what fuck the are you doing? That? Take a picture and just send it. <laughs> Why would I do that? I got to go to the hardware store and fax it. I'm like, what is this? 2002? <laughs> Anyways, 
Um, <laughs> I, di- I digress. <laughs> but what's interesting about this, and I think this is such this delicate balance where we are teaching both this idea of it has to be a fuck yes or no, which is really beautiful from the onset of a relationship. I do really believe in that sense of like desire, but in a lot of ways, our wounds create our chemistry till we understand what we're choosing. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is we get to this point in relationship where all of a sudden desire sort of like calms a bit after we've finished banging our brains out and, you know, we're in the honeymoon phase and it's whatever. And then, you know, in many in the research, they might call it the fall from grace or the I forget what Harville Hendricks calls it, the the battle for control. Mm-hmm. I think you call it the fall from grace. Don't mm-hmm. you? Yeah. 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 Where they become human and we see this humanness in them. And what I love in Esther's uh, book as well, Mating in Captivity, where she talks about how it's actually the sign you are in love. <laughs> like now that mm-hmm. this transition mm-hmm. has happened, we go love's no longer there because I don't want to penetrate them or be penetrated or whatever the the sexual mm-hmm. experience is now that that's not there as much there's no longer connection but it's actually a sign that love has begun to transform and transgress and and really go to a deeper space that you know I really am of this belief that we're not afraid to give love you know and like for most of us giving love is where we get to shift the focus. We get to say, but look how good I am at it. I do all these things for other people. I can take care of other people. I really think that we struggle with receiving it. That yeah. mm-hmm. yes, the state of love and connection and desire has, has diminished, but it transforms to this deeper state of intimacy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just went on a rant. What do you think about what I'm saying? No, I, I hear you. I, it, well, it makes where I go with it. One of the pieces, uh, so I, you know, one of my parts of my job is I, I train our marriage and family therapy students to do couples therapy. I am a couples therapist. And one of the kind of like standard couple therapy 101 tools that people have been using for a long time, because it's really pretty powerful as a diagnostic tool, a tool of assessment, as well as an intervention tool is, um, it's, it's sensate, sensate focus is what it's called, a sensate focus exercise. And it comes out of Masters and Johnson, sort of an original sort of sex therapy tool. And it's, it's really beautiful and really powerful. So basically what it is, is that, is that um, partners make some space um, and they spend, you know, a set amount of time, 15 minutes, five minutes, whatever feels like kind of the, the right amount for them at that time. And they take turns touching each other. So one person, partner A, lays down. And partner B does sort of long, gentle strokes, front and back, you know, lay on the back, lay on the stomach. And it's not sexual, but it's just touching. And it's and um, then they switch roles. And so each of them have the experience, like you're saying, of giving and of receiving. And it's a mindfulness exercise, really, because they're watching what happens. What is their body feeling? What are the thoughts? What are the emotions? Um, and they're kind of studying themselves. How are they responding to giving this t- touch to their partner. And then when they're on the receiving end, how am I responding to receiving touch from my partner? And it it's a really powerful, beautiful tool for kind of, yeah, noticing where are your constraints around giving and receiving pleasure, around relaxation, around touch, mm-hmm. around body. And, uh, and I think it can highlight kind of where, where you individually and relationally are being held back. I love that. It really mm-hmm. makes you be present in your skin, in your connection, in receiving and giving and mm-hmm. to be mindfully aware of what parts uh, you're saying sort of raise our fight or flight freeze sort of system 
and where are we getting stuck? And how do we, you said earlier that if it causes us a little distress, you know, if our heart rate goes up and if we're feeling scared, it's a good sign we're moving, <laughs> you know? And I love that when I got out of a, my five-year relationship that where I was like, how did I get here? Like, how did I get so disconnected from myself? You know, how did, when did I lose actual sight of what I wanted? And when did I sort of abandon my, what I really wanted? And I remember I made the rule after that, I saw that I avoided every conversation that was important. Uh And so I made the rule that I would have every conversation I don't want to have. And I would have it as it came up. Because what I saw then is I intellectualized a way to sneak out of that where I was like, well, I know I need to have the conversation. I'll just wait a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that didn't work out because, yeah, because this girl once wrote me after I waited a couple of weeks to break up with her. And she's like, you knew this two weeks ago. And I was like, shit, I did. Fuck. Uh Like, I can't, to live at my highest level of knowledge, I must always operate with this space of, okay, now I know the timing matters. And, you know, to bring this all back to that thought of whenever we feel vulnerable or scared or like we're, we're entering a space that we can be hurt, we're actually entering a space where we can feel loved. Mm -hmm. Yep. And man, when you can learn to lean into that, to trust that the heart rate's going up because you're entering space that you haven't necessarily been past. Like maybe you have been past there and there was hurt. And now you're learning how to create a different story where there's actually deeper love and intimacy that's found through conflict, connection, vulnerability. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I really, I'm with you on all of that. And I think one of the, yeah, this is what um, Gottman calls the low negativity threshold, right? Couples, you know, healthier, happier couples tend to have that where they just, right, they're not willing to let stuff pile up to the ceiling before it gets talked about. So that's what you're noticing within yourself is that it's really important for you to be aligned and attuned and the kind of partner you want to be to bring stuff up as you notice it, to to speak your truth in a way, like rather than sitting on it. Because right, when we sit on it, it can it starts to breed resentment and fester. And I think another, along with that, what I hear oftentimes is people will say, I don't know how my partner's going to respond and it's going to go it's going to go poorly or, or I don't know how it's going to go. And it's this idea that it's all you have to know is where to start. Like you just have to start, start with mm-hmm. the beginning. What, um, Glendalyn, um, you know, Melton calls the fir- the next right thing, the next little, so you just have to do the first little right thing, start the conversation and then be humble enough to trust it's unfolding rather than being in this place of control. Like, unless I know how my partner's going to respond and how we're going to resolve it and what the outcome's going to be, then I can't start. Really? Really? Yeah, right? Hmm. What I, I mean, in the experience of that in my own life, in my experience of observing and working with people, is you're already deciding for the other people how they respond. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You're robbing them of their own emotional experience. Yes. You're also robbing them of truth. And that Mm -hmm. became, I mean, a huge level of responsibility within my own life was when I wasn't breaking up with a girl because I was afraid that she wouldn't be able to move forward or she wouldn't, which when I actually saw the level of responsibility, I was taking away from her. Oh yes. Like choosing her, choosing like what a dick move, you know, versus like actually not being so selfish and terrified and compromising both of us Uh and actually allowing space to move forward. It's, it's an interesting experience when we are not sharing something with someone. And I think there is a visceral part of our story, too, that's like when I have shared my feelings or when my family 
shared emotion. It was always at high volume and with aggression and physical abuse or whatever it is that I can understand that that body goes into like, whew, fight, flight, freeze, right? right. Like, I don't want to share this because every time any emotion is being shared, it's led to pain and suffering. And so being able to change that story. Well, and it becomes and it becomes such a source of pride then. Like when two people, two wounded souls, you know, come together and create a create a relationship in which hard stuff can get talked about. And I know that when you're doing a vulnerable share, even if I'm tired, I'm gonna, you know, either meet you where you are or or do what I need to do within myself to be of service to you. Like it becomes such a source of pride. Like look at us, look at us breaking that legacy. Look at us doing it differently. Like it's such a, I mean, I, I well up so often in my couples therapy sessions when I imagine my clients as young kids in the families they grew up in or, or, or even the couple, you know, years ago versus now, like just the potential for growth and transformation and the pride that comes from, look at us doing it differently. A year ago, we would not have been able to have this conversation Mm -hmm. this way. Six months ago, we wouldn't have been able to, you know, that, 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 that it becomes such a source of pride that we can do this hard thing well. We can do what love demands of us, um, which is hard. It, it, what it takes to make, oh, a, to make a relationship yeah. work, it is not easy breezy. And you need a heck of a lot more than just some really great sexual chemistry, right? You, need, you really need these tools and the kind of self-work and the relationship work. Yeah, it's such a powerful thing to, for people to know that you can learn these skills. These aren't like you were born in this family, you just got this genetics, and now you're good at communicating. Mm-hmm. It's like really it is such a, a, a skill set. And some of us started out maybe with our foot a little further along because we were taught a little more. But what we're taught that's not necessarily great at connecting also gives us the contrast of knowing what is. You know, and so even if we had some poor instructions in there, and all of us have had some poor instructions, mm-hmm. it's being able to know that we can actually learn them. And I want to bring it back to that, you know, that idea of let's say we have sexual disconnection within a couple. And you were talking about how generally, you know, if we're just going on a generalization, when women have this more complex nature of arousal and desire. So what are the things that if in if someone functions more that way than hey i see some boobs i'm excited i want to mm-hmm. do it mm-hmm. versus i noticed it's like what would the couple do that would engage in those things that really allow arousal and experience to precede desire does that make sense yes yeah yeah right um, well, I, so I think it, it is really, I think there are ways in which it's idiosyncratic for the couple. So it's, it's the kind of their work and their journey to figure out what works for them. But some of the, some of the things that people have found helpful, I love this one, which is the idea that we declare, we set it aside, whatever it is, a, once a week or whatever feels like the, the right time or frame. And that's the time when we, that's when we have sex. That's when we create a sexual space and people can feel like my college students, the eye rolls I get in lecture when I mention this idea of scheduling sex is, you know, because it feels absolutely antithetical to romance unless you look at it from a different space, which is, you know what? Saturday evening is the time when we, the whole entire world goes away and we practice our sexual love for each other. We practice our love in this way, much the way we practice yoga or practice whatever, you know, whatever. And that that's our, our declared time. And yeah, there may be times that we don't, there may be extra times that we do, but that is our, 
we declare that time and that space for us. And I think especially couples who are, you know, two career and kids in the house, whatever it is, there needs to be, uh, we can't just rely on sex unfolding in a really spontaneous way. There need to be, there needs to be some intentionality and intentionality can be romantic because, because then there's a sense of awareness during the day and, and especially the one who has more responsive desire may need to be kind of whatever helps her. I'm going to say her kind of be in yeah, that. Let's just call us yeah, be in that space. And it may be reminding her that this, that she'll be so glad when she's done, right. That she'll feel really happy that she did it or reminding her this is really, it's good for her health. It's good for the relationship health, feel whatever helps her kind of feel sexy. What, what helps her? Is it, is it music? Is it, you know, what can she do? help her pull in that sexual energy and remind herself that she's entitled to it, that she deserves it, that it's good for her. It's good for them. So it kind of becomes almost like a a ritual. Like it becomes part of the habits and rituals that nurture the couple and their connection. And I think also to be mindful of, let's say we're like, well, I just want you to you know, maybe earlier in the day, send me a note or like get me flowers or whatever your love language is, Mm -hmm. you know, that that precedes desire that gets the juices flowing, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one thing that I have definitely seen in relationship is when one person does that act, the other person says, you're only doing that because. Oh, that is. Uh, Yeah. Right. And then it's like knife in the effort heart. And they're like, fuck you. Uh (laughs) Right. Like Then I'm not going to try. And when I don't try, yeah. that doesn't feel right. Yeah, that's the, the thing you were describing before about feeling not like nothing works, feeling like that futility. Yeah. And so I think just to be mindful, like I worked with this one couple where the woman wanted flowers and you got her flowers. And then she said, well, you're only doing that because I asked for it. And he's like, yeah, fucking right. That's right. I am doing it because you asked for it. Like, yeah. Isn't that the whole point? That's how so much I love you. Like, I do the shit that you asked me to do because I love you. That's how much I love you. Yeah. Well, and being able to do the monitoring, right, to then become part of our relational self-awareness of what belief am I looking for evidence to satisfy that I'm not lovable, that I'm not desired, that I'm not, versus seeing this act as this demonstration of standing, you know, on the bridge and inviting them on the bridge with you. And, and, and to even catch ourselves in, you're only doing that because I'm being like, oh, man, sorry, I'm doing that thing. You know, that's such a beautiful testament, too. It is. Um, it's a reminder that human beings are at their core, meaning-making machines, right? We make stories out of everything. It's our essence. And so, and so what that means is that we all, there's always another story available to us that we can just reach out and grab. So the story of you only did that to get sex can, there's another story right next to it that's available that is, oh my gosh, he loves me so much. He values so much the space that we enter into together that he's doing this in order to set the stage for us. It is a, it's a caretaking Mm -hmm. gesture to set the stage for what will unfold, which serves us and which serves love. So yes, catching ourselves telling when we start telling that most negative story of our partner's intentions of the nature, even this whole thing about scheduling sex, sir, there's a, there's a story about everything is so bad that we have to schedule sex. It is duty. It is obligation. There's an entire story sitting right next to that. That's about how beautiful it is that we love each other in this way. And we know we're savvy enough to know that we as a couple deserve and need to declare time and space for sexual, sexual expression, that this is how we do it. That story is right there next to the story about boring, blah, 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 you know? So we, the good, the good news is because 
we are folks whose story we can choose we can choose a story that serves love instead of serves you know resentment and distance and disconnection wow how powerful to actually take note of and observe that you have two stories available to you and which one you choose really actually dictates whether desire exists or not, mm-hmm. or whether love exists or not, that you could be like, well, we love each other so much that we're going to create this time. And then that be such a contribution to seeing that love is there versus, oh, we have to schedule this and we're broken. And mm-hmm. I mean, in such a time when we are so distracted, we do have, you know, a lot of us are in our phones a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and on our computers and we have notifications and we're, I mean, I even got a bicep injury from holding my phone. Isn't that bad? <laughs> the, there's, um, right? there's Pew, there's a, um, some research out from Pew about the number of Americans who check their phones during sex. And I want to say it's close to 10%. That's yeah. obscene. Is that like in doggy style, you set your phone <laughs> on the. No, right. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But it, those ten percent need to, you know, really check themselves. I mean, they need therapy. <laughs> the person checking their phone, you got to ask, like, what message are you sending? Why are you checking your fucking phone while you're pumping or you're doing whatever? Or someone's giving you some oral. Ooh, you're checking your phone. Not good. That's when I'd put a finger in the butthole just to give them a little, <laughs> oh, a little wake up call. God. The hitchhiker, I like to call it. (laughs) Okay, well, we need to figure out for people listening where to find you. So your book, Loving Bravely, you can get on Amazon. Yep. I'm Amazon in yeah Barnes and Noble anywhere. I've seen it on the end cap at Barnes and Noble. I was like, shit, I know that girl. Yes, yes, yes. And then so Barnes Noble, Amazon, you can prime that shit to your house, get it tomorrow. You have a website. I have a website, DrAlexandraSolomon.com. And I love, you know, the best, the most fun part about uh, having a book in the world is hearing from readers. I love when I hear just little snippets from readers about what stood out to them, what's different for them, you know, having read the book. And each of the, each of the lessons of the book has some exercises that readers can do. So it's really applied. Oftentimes, um, people will, do, you know, read the book along with um, therapy that they're doing, individual or couple therapy, and it kind of becomes this like supercharged experience. So it's, it's been really Yeah, This book is a baseline knowledge recommendation for all of my followers, all of the people listening to this. If you want to build relational self-awareness, you don't have to go looking for 47 books. You can literally do it in this one book. And you also have an Instagram that you write amazing content, which is dr.alexandra.salman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I got that right. Dr.alexandra.salman. Yes. And I'll put in the show notes everything that we mentioned so that everyone can get that. I'll put your contact information. Um, I want to say thank you because whenever we jam, I'm just like, oh, Lord, this is just (laughs) phenomenal. And you give me so many nuggets. And I'm sure to everyone listening, they'll be like, bring her back. And we will because we'll just record one of our conversations that we have. For sure. I know I could talk to you all day and sometimes do. Same, same. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the podcast. If you really enjoyed this, please consider sharing the episode with your friends. And if not, just sharing the podcast itself because everybody is interested in relationships, whether they admit it or not. So you'll be doing them a favor. I would love your feedback. You can just head to my website, markgroves.tv, like television, to leave a comment for the podcast. Join me next time as we find out what it is that makes humans amazing lovers. <laughs>